go ahead and get started. My name is Damon Wilson. Uh, thank you very much for, for joining us. Uh, I'm the Executive Vice President here at the Atlantic Council uh, with our programs and strategy. I'm really pleased to offer you to this uh, event to uh, release uh, the latest Atlantic Council, uh, actually D10 report, which I'll explain on constraint countering Russia's challenge uh, to the democratic order. It's a pleasure to have all of you with us here today. Uh, for this uh, program that's led from our uh, Red Scrollcraft Center on International Security. Um, the Kremlin, under the leadership of, of President Vladimir Putin, has clearly taken increasingly more aggressive actions in recent years to challenge the security of the West and to undermine the U.S.-led democratic order. The release of this report is quite timely. Um, exactly three years ago today, Russia organized a referendum in Crimea and a blatant and widely criticized attempt to legitimize an unlawful invasion of Ukraine and the annexation of Crimea. But this uh, report also comes out of a time when the Trump administration is beginning to shape its approach with Russia. Um, President Trump has stated a desire to get along with Vladimir Putin. Putin's proposed a summit with the president sometime in the near future. Um, but at the same time, we were just in Munich with Vice President Pence, where he and other administration officials <coughs> have reiterated the importance of holding Russia to account for its actions in Ukraine and Syria. Um, how should the Trump administration and other US allies around the world deal with Putin's Russia? So this report tries to tackle this question. And for the past six months, we've had a group of former officials and experts uh, from a network of global think tanks from leading democracies in Europe, in North America, uh, and Asia that have collaborated to outline a new strategy for Russia. And it's the think tanks that participate in a unique and impactful set of meetings, which we call the D10 Strategy Forum, led by the Center for International Governance and Innovation in Canada, as well as the Atlantic Council, the D10 Strategy Forum, brings together top policy planning officials and experts uh, from 10 leading democracies at the forefront of building and maintaining the rules-based democratic order. Uh, participants in the D10 are Australia, Canada, France, Germany, Italy, Japan, South Korea, the United Kingdom, the United States, plus the European Union. And they all share clearly a commitment to common values and possess the capabilities to shape and influence global action, something fundamental to the U.S. to the Atlantic Council's mission. So this report represents a unique collective effort by these experts that have been participating in the D10, um, and it's part of our mission to work more closely with our allies and partners, integrating them into our work, our analysis, as this project does. And so as part of that effort, we're pleased to have some of the co-authors here today uh, for what will be an interesting conversation. And in just a few minutes, we'll be hearing more on the challenge of Russian how to address it from our panelists uh, with perspectives from across many of these countries. But to kick off uh, today's discussion, we have the privilege to be joined by Ambassador Sandy Birchdahl, uh, uh, who will provide his take on the challenge that we all uh, face in dealing with and mapping out a strategy with Russia today. Uh, as many of you well know, Ambassador Birchdahl served as ambassador to Moscow from 2001 to 2005 uh, in the early days of, of Vladimir Putin. And he served, uh, of course, as US ambassador to NATO, to South Korea, and more recently as Deputy Secretary General of NATO. He's now, uh, we're very proud to say, at the Atlanta Council as a distinguished fellow helping to guide uh, much of our work in this area. Um, before Ambassador Hirschfeld speaks, I'm going to turn to Simon Palomar, who's with us, to offer a few words 
uh, of welcome on behalf of our team partner, which is the Center for International Governance Innovation, uh, or CG, uh, which was a founding partner in this D10 strategy forum, and we're extremely grateful uh, for your commitment to this initiative and for your work. Um, so let me invite time to the stage, please. Thank you. Hi. Hi, everyone. Thank you, Damon, for the kind introduction. And uh, I'm just simply here on behalf of the Center for International Governance Innovation in Canada. Uh, we've worked on the D10 Strategy Forum with the Atlantic Council for about three, three years now. And uh, I mean, I have to thank Ash Jane, who I think has done a tremendous uh, amount of work helping put this together. They're a great partner, uh, even though we sometimes almost come to blows. <laughs> Generally, a very productive partnership. And when I was talking with Ash about this and you know how we're going to frame this this discussion and whatnot, he suggested I kind of give a little bit of perspective, you know, from sitting in Canada observing Canadian politics, Canadian foreign policy, and. So I'm just going to just take a couple minutes and you know abuse my time at the podium a little bit here, just to reflect on the fact that you know when we started this process, the D10 Strategy Forum, it's remarkable where you look at where we are today in terms of the conversations, in terms of the diagnosis of the the challenge that Russia is posing to you know Western foreign policy, and where. Uh, various, you know, government participants and think tank participants think policy ought to go. None of this is static, and I mean, I think that sounds kind of obvious. You know, things change, but what we've seen over the last few years, particularly in Canada, is a real evolution in terms of thinking and in terms of policy. And it's kind of gone through three stages. You know, you have the initial stage after the, uh, you know, the Russia's invasion of Crimea, which really kicked off this this round of you know, terrible relations, where the attitude was, you know, very much one of showing toughness, being, you know, very resistant, being rigid, uh, talk about downgrading relations, severing formal communications, that, you know, Russian policy wasn't just aggressive, it was intolerable. As time progressed, you know, a new government comes into Canada, and there's some thought about, you know, well, perhaps that original line is too hard. Was it wrong in style? Was it wrong in substance? And should it be changed? And there was talk about, you know, reinvigorating relations with Russia, cooperating on issues of mutual interest. And perhaps it was, you know, an error in, in messaging and less an error in you know, substance, but this led to the impression that Canada, <clears throat> at least in some circles, was willing to really, you know, was perhaps a bit shaky on Russia, perhaps a little too forgiving, willing to, you know, change policy dramatically and move away from its allies. I don't think it's a, I don't think it's a correct critique, but it was certainly the talk. Now, when you look at where Canada pol Canadian policy has moved since then. <coughs> Canada is now you know, spearheading a NATO battalion in Latvia. And in the last fiscal update in Canada, uh, there was a direct mention of Canadian armed forces operations in Europe, which in a you know, Canadian fiscal update, I mean, that's not something that is talked about. Rarely does defense spending make the news. We now have a uh, foreign minister in Canada who is on a Russian sanctions list and is prohibited from going to Russia on the basis of her criticism of Russia. But we do have a government that says they're still willing to extend a hand and you know, engage on dialogue where there's potential for some mutual you know, benefit. There's still opportunity to talk on the Arctic, on Syria, et cetera. Then it should be done. 
And I use these sort of these three acts, this, this change in Canadian policy, this refinement. I mean, it's really about, I think, threading the needle now. It's, it's finding a fine balance between, you know, holding the Kremlin to account and working with it and engaging where it can be done. And I think in that evolution, you know, we've seen a similar change in thinking, a similar evolution in thinking within the D10. That what appears to be, you know, the, the obvious course three years ago with a bit of refinement, a bit more thinking, it's changed accordingly. So I think in that regard, you know, where we are now presenting this, uh, this report, presenting this strategy, we really have, I think, we are now hitting that fine balance, finding a way to, you know, engage on the one hand and stand firm on the other. So, you know, good timing in that regard. So with that, I just want to thank everybody again for coming and thank the Atlantic Council for being a tremendous partner on this. Good afternoon. Thanks, Damon. Thanks, Simon. Uh, I'm very pleased to uh, be able to offer a few comments in connection with the launch of this important report that sets out a strategy for constraining Russia's challenge to the democratic order. And as Damon said, the timing couldn't be more ideal. Uh, three years ago this month, Russia illegally annexed Crimea and laid the groundwork for its ongoing campaign to destabilize Ukraine. That moment marked the end of a period of more than 20 years when the countries of the West looked to Russia as a partner. Now, of course, even before 2014, Russia had demonstrated a pattern of destabilizing countries uh, in its neighborhood, particularly Moldova and Georgia. But Russia's aggression against Ukraine, including the first changing of borders by force since the end of World War II, represented a new strategic reality and a wake-up call for the United States and its allies. That new strategic reality is uh, even starker today. Russia has not only continued to undermine the post-war and post-Cold War international order through its illegal occupation of Crimea and its continuing war of aggression in eastern Ukraine, Russia has also engaged in a kind of political aggression against our societies, using cyber attacks, disinformation, propaganda, and influence operations to affect the outcome of elections and to undermine confidence in our democratic institutions. In essence, Russia is trying to undo decades of progress toward a more stable and integrated Euro-Atlantic community. It wants to turn back the clock to a time when Russia dominated neighboring countries through force and coercion, using military intimidation, economic warfare, and uh, active measures. It aims to weaken and divide NATO and the European Union, which it sees as the main obstacles to its expanded power in Europe, and it's trying to to reduce their attractiveness to other countries. It openly works to destabilize countries that seek closer ties to the Euro-Atlantic community, as we're seeing in the Western Balkans, even sponsoring, as reports have it, an armed coup d'etat in Montenegro at the end of last year in order to try to derail that country's accession to NATO. And there's more. Moscow's challenge to the international rules-based order now extends beyond Europe to Syria and the Middle East as Russia has provided greater levels of military support for President Assad, including bombing moderate opposition groups and driving tens of thousands of civilians from Aleppo and other cities, it's made it even more difficult to find a long-term end to the violence in Syria, and all this while contributing very little to international efforts to defeat ISIS. And now Russia seems to be seeking a foothold in Libya, undermining international efforts to support the fragile government of national accord and end the civil war there.
And as you all know, all of this has occurred against the backdrop of a massive upgrading of Russian military forces, both conventional and nuclear, in every domain. And at the same time, Russia continues to flout many of its obligations under arms control and transparency regimes, as we've seen with the recent news about the deployment of a long-range ground-launched cruise missile in violation of the INF Treaty. So while we should always seek constructive relations with Russia, we should approach the relationship without any illusions. We need to recognize that it's Russia's actions which have fundamentally changed the relationship, and that any change for the better depends on changes in Russia's behavior. Uh, given the comprehensive nature of the challenge that Russia poses to our security and that of our friends and allies, we need a comprehensive strategy to meet that challenge, one that builds on the combined material and moral strength of our close allies and partners in Europe and around the world. The report being launched today provides such a strategy and should be required reading for the new U.S. administration. As you've heard, it's based on contributions of former officials and experts uh, from three continents uh, who form the D10 Strategy Forum. And the report sets out a comprehensive framework for the United States and its allies to counter the Russian challenge to our security interests and to our dem democratic institutions. Coining a new word, it presents a strategy of constrainment, measures to constrain Russia's ability to undermine our interests and this strategy has five key pillars, which I'll, I'll leave it to Ash Jane and the other panelists to explain them in detail, but I'd like to highlight a few points that struck me as especially uh, important and interesting. Under the first pillar, defending against and uh, deterring potential Russian threats, uh, the report emphasizes the need to strengthen NATO, its defense and deterrence posture, its cyber defenses, uh, in countering anti-access uh, area denial capabilities, uh, but it also stresses, in my view, that helping Russia's neighbors to defend themselves is no less important than, than what we're doing for NATO itself in terms of constraining Russian ambitions. And it recommends uh, lethal defensive weapons for Ukraine. Uh, but I'd like to hear more about uh, one of the rec recommendations under the first pillar, namely that we lay down clear red lines with meaningful consequences to deter further Russian meddling in democratic elections. It sounds good, we need to know how that would work in practice. Now on the second pillar, penalizing Russian violations of global norms. Uh, this has very clear relevance uh, to Ukraine. Uh, as the new administration formulates its Russia strategy, uh, it's absolutely essential to maintain the transatlantic consensus that sanctions imposed following Russia's aggression against Ukraine be maintained until Russia ends that aggression and once again respects Ukraine's sovereignty and territorial integrity. And the litmus test, of course, is the full implementation of Russia's obligations under the Minsk Accords and ending the insurgency that it has created and orchestrated in eastern Ukraine. And I hope the Trump administration, having said some of the right things about uh, sanctions and the link to the Minsk agreements, will make implementing Minsk an integral part of its Russia strategy. The third pillar of the strategy uh, is about waging a battle of narratives to counter Russian propaganda, disinformation, and fake news. And here the report has some innovative ideas, uh, upgrading uh, U.S. government efforts to assess and counter Russian propaganda, uh, and coordinating more closely with similar efforts uh, by the European Union, and I would add with NATO as well. Uh, it also suggests creating a new non-governmental entity along the lines of the National Endowment for Democracy, uh, 
which would again try to combine resources from uh, North America and Europe to generate more diverse and credible content uh, aimed at communicating what the West stands for uh, to our own publics and to Russian-speaking audiences. Uh, but I hope the panelists will explain this further uh, during the discussion. The report recommends as the fourth pillar uh, continuing to support the aspirations of the Russian people by speaking out for democratic rights, uh, meeting with opposition figures, and encouraging more people-to-people -people contacts. Now, some might consider this a bit unrealistic given how much Russian society is, is becoming more and more closed. And indeed, the Kremlin, uh, very fearful of a Russian Maidan, will continue to make it very difficult to carry out such engagement. But I agree with the authors that we shouldn't give up on efforts to reach out to the successor generation uh, and to support what remains of Russian civil society, since at the end of the day, end of the day they're the keys to Russia's future and the key to better relations between the West and Moscow over the longer, longer term, the longer term meaning when Putin is no longer in power. Now finally, underpinning all the other pillars is the report's recommendation to maintain Western unity uh, by collaborating among the leading democracies in, as we deal with Russia. Uh, as a NATO veteran, uh, I am in violent agreement with this point. Uh, if we want to influence Russian behavior and recreate conditions for more constructive relations, our best chance, really our only chance, is to combine the economic, political, and military weight of like-minded democratic nations and organizations in pushing back against Russian challenges to our security and to our values. If we let Putin divide us, we are lost. Uh, the paper concludes by acknowledging that there may be some areas where we can still cooperate with Russia to mutual benefit, as we've seen in the case of the Iran nuclear deal. Uh, the authors recommend that we look for other possible areas, countering ISIS, dealing with North Korea, but that we adopt a policy of principled engagement uh, that, off that avoids offering trade-offs that would compromise our values. And again, I, I fully agree with this. And uh, again, referring back to Ukraine, uh, a concrete example of this would be uh, resisting any temptation to consign 45 million Ukrainians to a Russian sphere of influ influence uh, or imposing neutrality on uh, that country in return for Russian cooperation against ISIS for which Russia should require no incentive. So I'll stop there and uh, turn the spotlight to our panel. Uh, again, I think this report should be required reading for the uh, new administration, but also for uh, other allied governments. It makes clear that a combination of strength, defense of our values, and principled engagement uh, is the best way to meet the Russian challenge, and it offers some very interesting proposals toward that end. Uh, we heard some high praise from Senator Rob Portman yesterday who said that the strategy laid out by the Atlantic Council and uh, together with uh, CG presents a clear-eyed and comprehensive approach to relations with Russia that highlights the potential for cooperation on areas of mutual interest while acknowledging the severity of the Russian threat and the need for sustained U.S.-led engagement to defend shared values and interests. So uh, that's the message, and let me turn it over to our panel. Thanks very much. Thank you very much, Sandy. Thank you for that and for your leadership. And I just want to go ahead and invite Carol Lee uh, to come forward, who will moderate the panel discussion. Carol is the White House correspondent uh, with the Wall Street Journal, and we couldn't be happier to have you with us and invite the panelists to join her on stage. 
Hi, thank you. Um, we're going to begin the discussion with a three-minute video, so if you'll all just take a look at this, that'd be great. Thank you. Russia has plans to strengthen military ties with Sudan during a visit to Khartoum, where he met with Sudanese President Omar al-Bashir. Russian fighter jets hit another hospital in Syria, reportedly killing dozens of people, including doctors, nurses, and patients. It is the fifth hospital Russia has allegedly hit since beginning its bombing campaign last month. It was the shocking murder of a prominent Russian dissident seen here dying in his hospital bed and an act of nuclear terrorism, say British officials, in the heart of London. Prominent Russian opposition leader Boris Nemtsov has been shot and killed by an unknown assailant. A lot of Putin's critics, whether they're politicians or journalists, have a curious habit of ending up dead. In order for us to solve many big problems around the world, it is in our interest to work with Russia and obtain their cooperation. We are not bound to be adversaries. We should seek common ground based on shared interests. and a former member of the Secretary of State's policy planning staff. Uh, we have James Nixie. James Nixie, uh, 
he's the head of the Russia and Eurasia program at Chatham House. And I hope I get this right. Uh, Constance, just say Constance. Drop yeah, Constance. Okay. <laughs> uh, senior fellow at the Brookings Institution. And we also have, uh, joining us by video, hope I also get this one right, uh, Fabrice Prothier. And he is the former head of policy and planning at uh, NATO and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council. So, um, and I also want to point out that um, Ash and James are co-authors of this new strategy and uh, Fabrice and Constance will be uh, just merely commenting on it. So I thought I'd start with you, um, Ash, if you could describe what is this strategy of constrainment and what are the main pillars of this strategy? Certainly. Well, th thank you, Carol. Um, we started with the, the premise uh, that, the that a strategy for Russia can only succeed if it is backed by the United States and its core allies. Uh, essentially, the goal here was to produce a collective strategy, one that brings in experts from across some of our core democratic allies across the Pacific and the Atlantic, with the idea being that these are the states, these are the countries that have the greatest stake in upholding uh, the rules-based order since the end of World War II. And these are the states that have the influence, the capabilities to continue to shape and defend that order. Uh, and so the genesis of this report, working through what Damon described as the D10, the D10 Strategy Forum, is to articulate a strategy that has built in it uh, the interest, not just of the United States, but of, of these core allies. Um, we also started with having, we thought it was important to start with a clear understanding of the, of the nature of the Russia threat and challenge. Uh, the paper points out in how and in what ways Russia has moved to challenge uh, the West. Uh, Ambassador Vershbaugh pointed out uh, that, the, the, that Moscow has acted to sow divisions uh, within the Western alliance. It has sought to challenge and counter the NATO alliance itself. Uh, it's also taken, uh, it's tried to uh, create uh, undermine public support for the values and norms uh, of a liberal democratic order. Uh, and in, in that sense, it is engaged in a series, as we saw in that video clip, of actions that are violating fundamental norms. And I think that's the heart of what makes the Russia challenge uh, so compelling. Um, the question really is, what do we do about it? And, and how do we address this challenge? Uh, as, uh, to paraphrase, uh, Brent Scowcroft, former national security advisor, strategy involves identifying a set of objectives and then finding and articulating the means uh, to achieve those objectives. And that's essentially what we've tried to do uh, in this document. Uh, our objectives for Russia, what are they? Well, ideally, we would be looking to see a Russia that would be willing to join the West, partner with the West to support and uphold uh, the basic norms and, and principles of the post-World War II order. Uh, we would like to see the West cooperate with the, cooperate in terms of promoting a, a Europe that's whole, free, and at peace. Uh, obviously, under Vladimir Putin, that kind of vision is completely unrealistic, uh, given where he's coming from, his own uh, sort of uh, personal objectives and ambitions, uh, and those for Russia. Instead, the West will have to focus on a more realistic set of objectives in the near term, and that's where this notion of constrainment comes in. The goal should be to constrain Russia's action, to limit its ability to undermine uh, and challenge the West, uh, and to uphold the, the rules-based order uh, and the legitimacy of that order. Um, and how do we get there? Well, well that's the five-part strategy, the, the pillars of containment. Um, Ambassador Vershbaugh uh, 
already highlighted and summarized the, the essence of those pillars. Uh, I'll just add a couple of comments to that rather than repeat uh, each of those pillars once again. Um, I think it's important uh, as part of this first uh, and really the, the, the primary uh, pillar, which is deterring and defending against Russia, uh, which requires providing our allies in Europe, both NATO allies and other partners, with the ability to defend themselves. Uh, and so to that end, providing defensive, lethal defensive weapons to Ukraine, for example, is, is essential. Um, it's also important to focus on cyber defense with, with the Russians penetrating and, and, and every, every other day coming out with stories of, of what it's been able to do to penetrate uh, Western um, uh, cyber systems. Uh, and, and then this issue of election meddling is critical. Uh, it is, it's in our, in our report, we suggest articulating these clear red lines, a declaratory policy that makes it clear that the West is prepared to act assertively uh, if Russia uh, engages and, and crosses these red lines against meddling. Now, how that's uh, spelled out in terms of a set of policies and specific actions, we, we can discuss that. Um, the pillar on penalties and, 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 and maintaining penalties against Russia, really what this is engaged or intended to do is to, is to make it clear that Russian, to the Russian leadership that they will pay a consequence for their violations of these fundamental norms. Uh, again, as we saw in the video, some of these basic norms of, of human, uh, humanity, human rights, complicity in war crimes, it's, it simply should not be the case that Russian leaders be given a pass for those violations, uh, even only because we're looking for some uh, short-term cooperation on, on sets of issues that are of immediate concern. Uh, and that means maintaining sanctions and sustaining them uh, over time, uh, especially while those kinds of, of, uh, of violations are continuing. Uh, in terms of this third pillar regarding propaganda, <coughs> disinformation, the Russians have really made it a, a high priority through RT and these networks of bloggers uh, and, and, uh, and people that they're using across, uh, you know, to, to sow divisions within the West, this, is a, this has to be raised to a high, high priority uh, because it's been uh, probably one of the most effective tools that Russia has been deploying, uh, at least in, in, the, in the last couple of years. Um, and and <coughs> there's been an effort through Congress to pass a, a legislation that creates this global engagement center out of the State Department, which is a useful first step uh, but much more is going to need to be done. It's not just a government effort, but it's going to require, in our, as we laid out a suggestion, a, a recommendation that we should be investing in, a, in an entity that's non-government, perhaps modeled after the, the National Endowment for Democracy, which has the ability to, to drive a narrative, to promote a narrative in favor of uh, defending Western and democratic values uh, and doing so in coordination with allies. Um, the fourth pillar, the democratic aspirations, so supporting the aspirations of the Russian people. Uh, in the long run, we assume, the report suggests a democratic Russia is more likely to abide by norms and principles of the rules-based order. And so it's in our interest to, to work with uh, and to support the people of Russia, uh, many of whom have been uh, prevented from publicly stating their desire to, uh, to, to, uh, to move towards a more democratic system within Russia. Uh, and so that means giving them a voice, providing them, as we did during the Cold War, meeting with dissidents, having our leaders uh, publicly show that they're with the Russian uh, opposition. Um, now we have to do this carefully because tainting the opposition in the eyes of the uh, Russian public is, is, can be counterproductive. 
but there are, that doesn't mean we, we back away from that effort. And finally, this fifth pillar of Western unity, um, that's uh, one of the keys here, as mentioned at the beginning, that we've got to collaborate and keep, keep that <coughs> unity, keep the allies united uh, behind a common strategy. The strategy can only succeed um, if it's done in a coordinated way. Uh, as far as engagement, we recognize the importance of engaging with Russia. It's, it's an important country. It has uh, common interests in certain areas where the United States and the West would benefit uh, tremendously by having Russia cooperating, whether it's on nuclear proliferation, uh, terrorism, uh, piracy, uh, other uh, arms control, other issues like that. Uh, but we have to be realistic. We have to recognize that Russia has its own interests. Putin in particular, uh, for instance, has a vested interest in the preservation of the Assad regime more so than in taking action against ISIS. So our, our suggestion through this idea of principled engagement is to avoid trade-offs, avoid giving Russia a pass for, these, for its violations of, of norms uh, in, the, in, in terms of trying to find expedient uh, cooperation on these specific issues. So that, that's the essence of the strategy, a, a robust, it's intended to be a robust and principled effort to, uh, to formulate an approach that will put the, the West in a stronger position uh, to counter these actions that Russia has been taking, taken over time. Thanks. Yeah. Um, James, I wonder if you could, uh, picking up on that theme of, of mm. unity, how important is unity between mm. the U.S. and mm. European allies in, you know, confronting Russia, but also, you know, in setting um, and enforcing some of these red lines that you're talking about and these various pillars and going mm. forward for this to work? Yeah. Thanks very much, Carol. And uh, just at the outset, thank you, Ash, and, and the Atlantic Council for for inviting me in, in on this, this project. But um, <clears throat> your question, the importance of unity. Um, well, at a very basic level, clearly, we're stronger together. Um, but, um, <clears throat> and I must say, coming from the UK, that, um, that Brexit uh, is not exactly <laughs> helping this process. It, it, does, it, does, uh, it does increase the disintegrative forces already underway in, in Europe. So. Um, you know, I'm not responsible for my, for my country, but, uh, but I'm afraid it's, uh, we haven't been helping. And the fact also that, that my country is really obsessed with Brexit right now, um, and really there's very little oxygen for anything else, uh, is, not, is not particularly helping. But, but that aside, you can't put it aside, but that aside, um, uh, I, I think although unit is important, we can't expect perfection, because it's 27, 28 countries, um, and clearly, uh, to be honest with you, um, you know, Hungary is never going to be on our side on this. It is closer to Russia. Um, I know it's joined us in the sanctions, but by and large, uh, it's, it, it looks different in Hungary to how it looks in Sweden, and it looks different in Portugal, never mind anything else. They have, they have a different set of problems, and, um, and I think that I don't want to de-stress unity, because the more, the better. But I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't try to, I, it's not for me an overriding importance. Actually, there's, there's something to be said for not for Brexit, because I, in principle, I suppose you could have an idea whereby the UK could go it alone and increase its own sanctions. But, uh, but I, think, <clears throat> I think the more important thing than, than, than unity for me um, is that a, a strategy of constraining Russia is actually going to take some sacrifice. Um, it's not possible to do if you are not willing to give it all. So if you take sanctions, for example, then then they do hurt us as well. They hurt Russia more, and they don't hurt Russia as much as the oil price, by the way, but, but, but at the end of the day, it's going to require some belt tightening on our part, collectively, in order to have a successful policy of constraining Russia. So 
So I think there will always be countries, uh, the Nordic countries, the Eastern European countries, Britain as well. And I can talk to you a little bit more if you like about the, uh, the UK-Russia relationship, although I wouldn't, I wouldn't over-egg the UK um, aspect because, as Sergei Lavrov said, it's a small country that nobody listens to anymore. Um, but um, but uh, I think there are, there are natural allies here, mm -hmm. um, and especially when the US is in a time of flux as well because actually Donald Trump is right. I mean, if it's paying for 73% of NATO membership fees, then actually that's a lot of money to pay for somebody else's security. And the, the, actually, it is, it is a wake-up call to, to, to Europe to, to do more in its own in its own neighborhood. Um, so unity is crucial, but it's not absolutely everything, is my summary point to your answer. Okay. Um, Constance, I wanted to talk about to you about a little bit about Germany, um, which is seen as obviously a critical player in any Russia strategy. Um, how is the Russia threat being viewed there, and, and to what extent is Russia meddling in those elections? Well, I think by now it's well documented that the Russians are meddling everywhere, including in my country. Um, you know, from, I think the most well-known case is the Auralisa case, uh, the alleged rape of a minor uh, by two uh, refugees, which turned out to be um, completely fabricated, but uh, it led to a rare face-off between then Foreign Minister Steinmeier and Lavrov himself, after Lavrov accused the German authorities of not properly prosecuting the case of this, of this girl who was a, of Russian ethnic descent. Um, and I think in general, at this point, the, it's, it, my response to this question is the Russians have really overdrawn their hand on this one. Um, it's one of the cases in Europe where it's become most clear that the Russians aren't particularly good at calibrating what they do. Uh, the Germans were already quite upset by the annexation of Crimea. Uh, you don't, it doesn't go down well in Germany when you chop off bits of other people's countries. Georgia was, if you will, um, you know, a case that where the Germans took a slightly more aloof posture, mainly because Saakashvili was so unpopular in Berlin. But Ukraine is simply closer to home. It's next door to a key neighbor of ours with whom we have a particularly strategic relationship. Poland, even if it's not particularly easy right now. Um, and then the continued military meddling in Donbass and Luhansk. And then, of course, the interference in the European project which from the vantage point of Berlin is, is key to our strategic posture, is key to European prosperity, stability, democratic transformation, and unity overall. That was what got people really riled, and, and this is true um, according to the polls, not just for policymakers, but for the public as well. Yes, there are stories about the Russians buying people in Germany just as they do everywhere else, and I'm sure they have, but you know, the, the person that gets cited in this context all the time is Gerhard Schröder, and Gerhard Schroeder has actually been asked by his party not to campaign on their behalf. Um, in other words, he's not all that popular these days. And I think it's more interesting that last week's visit by new foreign minister, Zygmunt Gabriel, also a, a social democrat, who, I mean, has, I think, when he, in his previous incarnation as economics minister, was known to be somewhat flexible on the, on the, on the issue of values um, when dealing with authoritarian countries which is why his initial visit to Moscow was anticipated with some concern by people like me and others. Um, and he actually had a conversation with Lavrov uh, where Lavrov, I believe, tried to pick up the, his point that he made in Munich again, 
on uh, this being a post-Western world, and then Sigmund Gabriel, to the surprise, certainly of Lavrov and me and a lot of other Germans, said, you know, as far as we're concerned, the West is not a geographic con uh, concept. It's alive and well, by the way, but it's one based on values, and frankly, it still remains the, the operative framework for us. This was, by the way, completely underreported in the English language press. I've been trying to look for a link for a piece that I wrote for the Post, and it's just, just not there. Uh, but so I, I think on the, on the whole, the Germans currently are very concerned. I mean, they are holding together the sanctions consensus, but, um, and which is a fragile consensus because yes, as, as you've said, we are paying for those sanctions and German Industry Federation has been moaning about this somewhat, uh, although they have been told not to moan by the Chancery. Um, but other countries pay far more. Other countries that are economically more vulnerable and more vulnerable to political pressure. And that is something that I, I think Berlin has to take into account. And of course, a key point here is American support. If, American, if support from Washington becomes wobbly, then the whole sanctions consensus in Europe is open to question in a way that previously simply wasn't conceivable. And that is a very serious worry. Stop there. I'd like to talk more about that because yeah. we obviously have a very important visit uh, from the Chancellor tomorrow. But I wanted to get Fabrice in the conversation. Um, could you just weigh in on what your take is on this idea of a strategy of constrainment? And if you could comment on um, how the Russia is impacting the French elections. We do. It by um, answering actually a point that James made about unity. And James took a kind of rather relativist approach to, yes, unity matters, but you know, it's never pretty at 28, and it's not all about unity. I, I have a slightly different take on this one. I think this is the number one target that Putin is going after. Uh, I give you very concrete examples. When I was at NATO, and even after I did left NATO, whenever you do a kind of military uh, planning or military scenario about any possible kind of uh, confrontation with, with uh, Russia anywhere in Europe, the first moves are often the moves that Russia tactically has the advantage. Uh, and obviously then the West, the US, and some core allies come together and start to kind of react and understand that this is a challenge, there's a real crisis, despite the fact that it's a hybrid crisis, but, and you know, somehow we come together. But the one thing that Putin is after is this moment of doubt, this moment of lack of unity, this moment where, you know, some allies think that well, this is not a real crisis, or it doesn't require a full-fledged response, we should not escalate, and some other allies who are much more hawkish. And I think every time we did scenarios, planning, and exercise at NATO, and even outside NATO, the West wins when the West finds the strength to come together. And if you look at the sanctions, for example, economically, they are quite small. Uh, especially for the U.S. economy, I think it's 0.25% of the U.S. global trade in terms of loss. And in Europe, uh, the, the impact is much greater for the East 
Eastern European countries and for the Western ones. Uh, and yet, just the fact of having that transatlantic effort to exert over more than two years now economic sanctions on one of the greatest military powers, a nuclear power, <coughs> and a permanent member of the UN Security Council, I think never such a power has been sanctioned to that extent and with that sustainability. And I think that is the one thing that we hold and we have to keep on holding. Um, on, on France, um, I think I'm not going to offer a very exciting answer. I think France is very, across the political board, both on the left and on the right, I think that the political elite and the policy officials hold a rather traditional Gaullist view of Russia, which is Russia is a European power. Uh, we have to deal with that European power. So we have to deter that power wherever it's annoying and it constrains us as a nuclear power, because we should not forget that France also is a nuclear power. But we should engage and maintain the dialogue because fundamentally Russia is part of the broader European construct. So this is the, the view that means that you hardly have a significant difference when you have a socialist government or uh, a right-wing government in France. However, there are increasingly some, some uh, we say, ambiguity or some cracks in that Gaullist consensus. Uh, on the extreme left, uh, unsurprisingly, and this has been the case for the past 20, 25 years, uh, but increasingly on the extreme or more conservative right uh, in France. And I think Fillon is a, is a typical example of you know, a politician who has been at the Gaullist school of thinking, who has, when he was prime minister, led a fairly you know, mainstream policy on, on Russia, and yet recently took a rather, I would say, surprising position of wanting to engage, of relativizing Russia's action in, in Ukraine. I think Fillon is doing that out of political opportunism to play to a Catholic right-wing base in France, uh, playing the fact that you know Russia is part of the broader Christian civilization and therefore we should work with Russia and so on. But it does create a doubt about that, how strong is the Gaullist consensus in France. Uh, I just want to finish on one point that James, it's not that I'm, I'm not going after James, I'm very much like James. But I need to correct something that James said and because it has a real echo currently in US politics. The US is not spending 73% of NATO uh, membership. The US is actually paying 22% of the NATO budget. Uh, actually, it's even paying less than it should based on its GDP because it was, uh, it was concluded that if uh, the US payment was based purely on its GDP, it would be so big that it would basically dominate the NATO budget. When the US spends 72 point something percent is on global defense spending. But this total defense spending is not purely and only allocated to Europe. It's also for the, uh, of course, the defense of the uh, American territory, but also for the Asian theater, the African theater, the greater Middle East. So I think we need, of course, there is a real question about the Europeans getting their act together, especially the Germans on defense spending. But I think we need to get the facts and the data right. Well, obviously, the next question is, I don't know, <laughs> <laughs> um, So, I wanted to go back to the UK for a second. Um, you know, how is the UK viewing Russia right now, and 
because of sort of close personal experience. You saw in the video the uh, images of Alexander Litvinenko. Um, is not, it's not the only murder committed by uh, Russians on, on British soil. Um, <clears throat> uh, but, and, but there are various other examples as well. There are ugly TNKBPBP divorce, the, the spy rock case, the closing down of the British council offices in Yekaterinburg and St. Petersburg. Um, so there have been um, a number of um, uh, bilateral issues whereby we, we very much understand the nature of the Russian challenge. Um, on the other hand, I have to say that the UK is compromised. Um, London, the city of London, is an entrepot for Russian money laundering. Um, we just can't seem to say no. Um, we have a number of our, our property market, um, uh, law firms, silks, um, accountancy firms, consultancies are often used by uh, PR firms, uh, are used by, uh, by, by Russia and the Russians. Um, for their own ends and purposes, and the, the money is simply too attractive um, for, for us to, to object to. So in a way, we have this sort of push-me-pull-you thing in, in the UK, whereby, you know, to, and this is, this, is, this is, if you like, this was um, reflected in Theresa May's, not only in Theresa May's speech recently in Philadelphia to the Republicans, where she says, you know, um, engage but beware. And by the way, I do think that, it, although I, I agree with your point about engaging, and I don't think engagement is a policy, and I think you have to always say what you're going to engage in, but, um, but also when, she, when Theresa May was, uh, was Home Office uh, Secretary, was um, Interior Minister, as you would say, or um, uh, Home, Office, Home Secretary, um, when she refused initially to uh, make the finding, to have a public inquiry into the death of Alexander Litvinenko, um, because she said it would affect trade and or, and slash or international relations with Russia. So I think, for what it's worth, I think the UK needs watching very carefully because we should all have a healthy skepticism of our own governments, and, and I do of ours, and I don't entirely trust them. The fact of the matter is, is that we have some excellent analysts in the Foreign Office in the UK, but their advice and analysis is not always filtering up into policy making. Um, sorry, Russia's goals, very briefly. Um, I shouldn't have spent so, quite so long, I'm sorry. Um, yeah, I think, we can, I think we could mark them out. Um, number one, um, it wishes to uh, be one of two global powers alongside the US which is extraordinary for a country with, say, the 11th largest economy in the world. Number two, it wishes a sphere of influence. There are about 150 million people in Russia. There's about 150 million people in the other post-Soviet states, some 5 million out either way. Um, and Russia believes that its 150 million are more important than the other 150 million, and that it can control. It doesn't want their soil, particularly. I know it's invaded Crimea. But by and large, it wants to control and influence the other post-Soviet states. The Russian empire doesn't end with Ukraine. It starts with it, in a way. Um, in, in its eyes. Um, and three, I think, in the Middle East, um, and this is slightly where I have a problem with the cooperation issue, and I think in the Middle, in the Middle East, and Russia wants an extension of its influence, its bases, and its activities there. And I do wonder what cooperation with Russia in the Middle East looks like. Do we, do they, do they, do we, do they help us with Russia and with Aleppo? I genuinely don't know what it would look like, actually. Um, uh, but, um, so I think that's, those are Russia's prime goals. Okay. Can, I, can I come in? Of course. <laughs> I think it was consensus. Not that I feel, you know, lonely out there, but uh, <laughs> I, I wanted to add something to what Jen just said. I think there is a central goal to the three goals, foreign policy goals that you just described, which is bridging preservation. I think sure. Putin, oh, number one, priority is to preserve his hold on power. And from there, I think it's the economic policy of making sure that the 50 or so people around the team keep the Putin system going uh, not to uh, uh, threaten by the sanctions, 
non-democratic or destabilized buffer areas around uh, Russia, because clearly for him to have a fully functioning young democracy like Ukraine at his door is a huge political threat. Uh, and so I think, and the notion of being, you know, equal with, with the U.S. and other powers is a way to show, you know, I'm, I'm restoring the greatness of, of Mother Russia. But I think racial preservation is really the central goal. And whenever we devise any strategy, uh, we need to keep that in mind to know exactly where we should exert uh, pressure and where we can get leverage. that after 9-11 we appear to have overcome many of our, much of our squeamishness about uh, the banking secret uh, in the case of terrorism. I don't see why we don't take this equally seriously and publicize some of that. Um, I think that would be very helpful. Secondly, the point I want to make that in all this, um, you've already mentioned the sanctions, cooperating on money laundering, on combating corruption. Um, in all of this, the EU has at least an equal importance to NATO. In fact, cooperation across the board between the EU and NATO is incredibly important. Um, I'm hoping that at some point we can make that point successfully, or that Merkel tomorrow can make that point successfully with the White House. And I say that because you will have noticed uh, that this White House has uh, made some rather hostile no uh, noises about the EU and about Germany's role in it, which are I have to say I find somewhat distressing because I, I find them not just use, not useful, but in fact uh, very, very concerning um, as we try and protect ourselves against these threats. Um, finally, I think one point, one point that you haven't mentioned is that the single most important strategic difference between the US and the EU or European member states uh, on Russia is that, is location and the fact that we Europeans don't have the luxury of selective attention. America, the superpower, can pay selective attention or, or prioritize or say we need the Russians for X, Y, Z and therefore we are willing to close an eye to other things. Um, we don't have that choice. Whatever Russia does will affect us in one way or another in our strategic space uh, and, and, and in ways that, as we have now understood, are exist of ex existential concern to the European project. So in some ways, our strategic interests are more sharply threatened, are more sharply at stake than are yours. Uh, particularly at a time when you think what goes on in Europe um, is no longer of interest to your strategic interest in the periphery of Europe, whether in the east or the south. I mean, to me, that is a fundamentally flawed analysis coming from the White House right now, and I'm hoping that it doesn't win the day. Uh, there are signs that it is at least controversial, and I hope it stays that way. But um, it has certainly sharpened European perceptions of the situation that we're in and what we need to do to boost our own defenses. And we are, of course, aware that Russia doesn't create vulnerabilities. It exploits existing vulnerabilities, and we need to pay attention to that. 
And I think we are doing that, but the, the prospect of an America that is not just indifferent to, but possibly actively hostile to some of those provisions is, is profoundly distressing to any European transatlantic Ash, I want to ask you about the uh, current administration. Obviously, uh, new to office, there's a lot of intrigue around Russia and his president. Um, outlined, Russia's really assertive, and so I guess my general question is: Is it possible at all for this president, President Trump, to have a different outcome or more, be more successful in uh, dealing with Russia and President Putin? Uh, than President Obama was or even President Bush was? Uh, yeah, let me say a couple of things to that. I, I think if you look back, of course, the pattern has been for new presidents to come into office thinking that they can now turn the tide on the relationship with Russia. President Bush tried that uh, after he looked at Putin's soul in 2001. Uh, <laughs> President Obama tried that again with this, the famous reset. Uh, and, and the, the red button uh, to try to get a new, a new relationship with Moscow. Neither one of those efforts succeeded. Uh, Trump is coming into office having spoken very much, uh, very actively, obviously, as we all have been following, uh, about the need to get along with Russia, to find a new way to engage. Um, and on its face, you know, I suppose you couldn't, uh, you couldn't fault him for trying to find a new approach that might help generate cooperation in the, in, on some of the issues that we've talked about. Uh, but I think it's, it's, of course, much more complicated uh, it's, uh, by, the, by, the, by all these the suspicions uh, about what's really motivating the Trump administration in this direction. Um, I think uh, it, it to whatever his motivations are, he's also boxed in uh, by his own advisors in many ways who are, who are coming to him with uh, or likely to come to him with advice uh, that is quite different, I think, than his own instincts. And we see that playing out on a regular basis where it's, you know, the U.S. ambassador to the U.N. seems to be stating policy positions that are much more assertive on Russia uh, than we're hearing from the White House, um, uh, General Mattis on military moves, etc. So I'm not sure, uh, it's clear, it's certainly not clear as yet where the administration wants to take this relationship and whether Trump has the room to maneuver, uh, even if he wants to go in the direction of some kind of new engagement. Uh, I would also add, second point, is that that engagement, in my view, is, is unlikely to go very far, even if it does get off the ground, uh, simply because uh, although we have some common interests at a general level with Russia, I mean, the Russians also fear uh, or feel threatened by terrorism um, and, and, and radical extremism. Um, they, they have an interest in trying to prevent nuclear weapons from proliferating around the world. Um, and, and so there's some basis to try to cooperate on some of those issues and, and, and others. Uh, but when it comes down to it, uh, you know, it really, it's going to be, they will link, they will attempt to link cooperation on even these kinds of issues with some kind of concession from the U.S. and the West. And that's where I think we have to be very careful uh, to, to not be tempted uh, to give concessions that would compromise our own values-based approach and the larger strategy uh, that we've outlined, uh, that, that would be a, a grave mistake. And, and so to that extent, it's, it seems unlikely that this this effort of, of engaging the Russians will get very far. Carol, can I, sorry, I don't want to interrupt. Oh, sure, go ahead. Yeah, I, I think like, um, I, I agree uh, with Ash, I mean, I think the U.S. administration is in a pretty bad position right now. Uh, President Trump started with 
basically what was a bad Russia policy, uh, and he now has no Russia policy. And I think his only way to get out of that corner, he box himself in, uh, is to stop by Ukraine. Uh, there is no way around it now. And I think Congress, including the GOP leadership, is now watching very carefully whatever moves he will make towards Russia and vis-a-vis the sanctions on Russia. So if he wants to have a Russia policy, I think he has hardly any, any other option than having to address what is dividing both the West and Russia, which is the conflict in Ukraine. And that, I know, has a lot of cons, because he will have to want to invest himself into European affairs, which, like Constance said earlier, is not really the instinct of this administration. He will have probably to up the ante to strengthen or to threaten to strengthen some of the sanctions. Uh, he will have to probably do more on the deterrence front in Europe. Uh, but, and I think the relations will have to get tougher before it gets friendlier. But, I think the silver lining is there is a way out. The way out is to play a much more engaged leadership role on settling the conflict in Ukraine. Uh, it will take from this president to make a new term, but it will be his first new term. Let's see what Chancellor Merkel tomorrow managed to, 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 to explain him. But I think there is a way really out, which could be actually paradoxically a way for President Trump to succeed where his predecessor failed. I'd like to get your thoughts on the visit tomorrow by Chancellor Merkel, and just if there's anything that Trump could say or do policy-wise that might put the West on a, a better position to deal with Russia, or give some clarity to what exactly he tends to do. All I can say is you and a lot of other people. Um, <laughs> The, I mean, that, that does seem to be one of the most watched visits of uh, them all. But look, I think at this point, uh, the ambition is going to be uh, twofold. One, to sort of create a favorable constitutional framework for policy that needs to be set ahead of or, or then signed on to at several important summits in the spring. Yeah. Have we lost Fabrice? Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. That's okay. So he's calling. All right. Somebody taking the call here. Yeah. All right. Sorry. Okay. There we go. Great. Hi, Fabrice. Um, so, uh, you know, that's the, the NATO summit, G20, G7, uh, all these are key. I don't think that Merkel is going to try and nail them down on specific specifics beforehand. I think the more important aspect of this particular meeting will be to dispel the anxieties created by the, as I said, hostile remarks about the EU and Germany's role in it uh, beforehand by uh, both the president on the campaign trail and his uh, trade protection council director, um, which, who has accused Germany of using the euro as a front for German currency manipulations, which yeah, even by some recent historical standards, is is um, strong language. So I, th I think that's that's it. I mean, given you know, given that this White House tends to be slightly less tightly scripted than some of its predecessors, I think um, that would incline a German diplomat to be even more cautious in pushing for specific outcomes, so as not to push the you know thing in the opposite direction. And I thought that can't be done. <laughs> Um, if I can make two questions from you guys. Uh, yeah, okay. 
Yes, uh, my name is Campbell Bhatt. I'm down with the Pakistani spectator. And my question is about opposition of Donald Trump about his uh, effort of cultivating relationship with uh, Russia, Switch, whatever you call it, without giving a single life, without losing America as the only superpower status. Uh, I'm asking this question because I've been in this city for more than 30 years, and there were times when liberal would go extra mile, liberal media would go extra mile to and the Cold War with Russia, but I'm sure that if uh, Donald Trump's media in public, they are going to tell, we need to send this evil man to St. Elizabeth Hospital because something wrong with him. So, but I'm surprised about, uh, you know, Republican opposition. I mean, Democrats make their living by opposing Donald Trump, but there are many Republicans, and my question is about, see, in the perspective of the gentleman who was working here, he, Donald Trump is sending him as an ambassador to Russia. So what is the agenda of this event? Um, the gentleman on the screen, he is the only rational guy who is giving some deep analysis, but the rest of that is just propaganda against uh, Donald Trump and against Switch Union, uh, Russia, whatever you call it, I'm sorry. Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> well, not, not, uh, not exactly sure what the question was, but um, <laughs> yeah. Why people are opposing so strongly about Russia? Because then Donald Trump can have cultivated relationship without giving American. See, there was time when the conservative Republican wouldn't mind giving a couple of thousand of American life. Uh, to, you know, yeah, I, I guess I'll, I'll take the about. question as, as why not engage Russia? Uh, you know, what's, what's the downside? And I, I think we, we were pointing out uh, both in the discussion earlier uh, and certainly in the report, uh, there's nothing, nothing wrong at its face with trying to engage Russia. There are common interests, uh, there are opportunities perhaps to try to have some kind of uh, cooperative uh, activity in certain specific areas. Uh, and th those should be explored. They've been explored in the past. Uh, there's no reason not to try to ensure that we can, we can look for those areas of cooperation. I think the, the question is at what cost and what, what do you trade off, what, what, how do you avoid giving in to that temptation? Uh, because the Russians, uh, the way Putin operates, is unlikely to simply cooperate on terrorism and ISIS because it's the right thing to do. He's he, uh, more than likely going to look for ways to use that as leverage, uh, and, and that's where we get, you know, into the specifics. Uh, I'm Harlan Elden with the Atlantic Council. An observation, then, a question. Uh, when I was in Moscow last, uh, it was late at night, too much vodka, and I was speaking to two exceedingly senior Russian officials. And I was taught using Ambassador Burstow's active measures. And they both laughed and came back to me and said, look, we're just taking a playbook out of what the Americans did in the 40s, 50s, 60s, and 70s, supporting autocratic regimes, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We don't understand why you're quite so upset. That's the context. The report, it seems to me, is very heavy on the what, but not the why or how. Uh, could somebody explain what they believe in is motivating Mr. Putin? I mean, he just didn't wake up one day after Sandy Birchbaum left Moscow and said, I'm now going to take all these things on and pursue these active measures. So what do you think is really motivating Mr. Putin and the Russians to do what they're doing? And you say that your first pillar is to deter and defend. Um, I asked Ash Carter and Joe Dunford what it takes to deter and defend uh, and defeat the Russians in case of a war that could be used with nuclear weapons. And of course, they didn't get a very good answer. 
And more importantly, what does it take to deter and defeat uh, so-called asymmetric action measures on the part of Russia? So I don't hear any really specific examples. I think Constance is right in terms of the money laundering. But this report is more on the what rather than the how. And I'd be grateful for some specific examples about how we really can deter and defeat Russia on these various levels. James, do you want to say that? That's correct. Yeah. Uh, what do we believe is motivating Vladimir Putin? First of all, I would say that, that we don't just have a, a Putin problem. We have a Russian problem as well. It's not. I wish it were true, but, uh, but I wish it were just Vladimir Putin. But I'm sorry to say, I was lecturing in, in a provincial Russian town a couple of weeks ago. And the younger generation in Russia, which I was uh, referring to, are uh, not especially encouraging. I said, partly oh, because they're fed by the state-led media. Unlike when you go to Minsk or Astana, you just thought of the younger generation there, when they actually, they actually want to go west, they have Western aspirations and Western liberal ideals. And uh, that's actually not true, worrying yourself for uh, in Russian generation. Nonetheless, that said, and it's also no answer to the engagement questions. This is how I do it, as an example. I mean, uh, for my country, I would expel five oligarchs and bring in 300 Russian students. And that makes a clear statement that you're not anti-Russian, you're not Russophobic. You want to encourage, but the right types of Russians. So as a, as a specific point, since you ask, I mean, I think there are, there are real specifics one can do. Actually, by the way, it's a appropriate proof that we're not Russophobic. <laughs> you know, Russia performed an enormous service in the Second World War. We actually didn't send anybody um, to the commemoration. Uh, and, and I think we should send the biggest thing to thank Russians for how they actually an enormous sacrifice to Russia, and I think it should be acknowledged. I think we should give them credit where it's due. But, it's in, but unfortunately, there's not much credit due. At the moment, the, the ledger is stacked against Russia. If you cumulatively add it up, and Russia doesn't have any many points in the positive column, it has a few. And I would, I would absolutely go with those. But you know, if we're taking you know, engagement over Iran, I mean, as I understand it, and actually the Russians sort of were really crucial in the Iran nuclear deal. They sort of stepped aside and let it happen. Yeah, that's um, absolutely. Um, so I, I think there are there are real. Yes, I understand. Um, there are. I do agree with Ash. I do agree with the report, obviously. Um, that that there are areas of cooperation which one can engage in. But unfortunately, I'm sorry to say that the values and in, the, for real cooperation, you need shared values and shared interests. And actually, we just don't have enough. Of them. What about the target people? Oh, can I address that? Yeah, yeah. Sure. Uh, two things. Um, your line of questioning, uh, very often when I, when I get that, the next question is about Russia being encircled by NATO. That's a thesis that I reject. Uh, that simply isn't, hasn't been the case. Uh, I think it's, we have to firmly keep in mind, and for a German that's somewhat easier to do, that uh, the Balts and other Eastern European countries ran away from, from Russia for a good reason. Uh, and that is why they are members of both the EU, the NATO, and the Euro, uh, because they, they all, all of this is political signaling as well. And I believe we have an obligation to protect them. Um, where I have, where I, my feelings are more ambiguous, or, or where I share James's concern, is not just about 1945, and occasionally saying thank you for that, and even as a German I would say thank you, um, is that I think in 1989, we. We, in 1991, we sort of all exhibited a kind of Western triumphalism. Yeah? 
and a, uh, and I think sort of gave the appearance that we were in some way colluding, condoning, abetting the, shall I say, Klondike-like free, capitalist free-for-all uh, that was the result of the dissolution of the Soviet Union, and where uh, sort of KGB and, and with the help of Western corporations and banks uh, took apart the assets of the Soviet Union and privatized them. Um, and, uh, and that, I think, in the minds of average Russians, created a, a deep and un, you know, unchangeable conviction that we were out to destroy their pensions and the future of their children. Yeah, that, I, that is something I deeply regret. Yeah, this kind of unilateral triumphalism, you know, we won, you have to take it. And you know, you know that in this town, and, and presumably in, in Europe as well, but particularly in this town, that was a movement that was quite prevalent. And I think that that has done enormous damage. One point I would, I would beg to differ with you on, on, on the all of Russia. I, I, I don't think it's helpful. The all of, you know, sorry, no, 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 all of the, the notion it's not just Putin, but Russia per se. I think it's really dangerous and, and, and works against us to generalize in this way. And I say this because the German version of the realist likes to say that the Russians are, you know, really not Europeans, they're kind of Asian, and therefore human rights and democracy are not for them. <coughs> I have to say, I find that racist. Yeah. I, I think that it is absolutely, utterly unacceptable to not assume that Russians don't want a decent society, a society where they have freedom from fear, from want, and all the other freedoms, same as us. Maybe on their own cultural terms, but not, not anything fundamentally different from what we have in the West. And I think that we should always work on the basis of this, of this assumption that, that that is what Russians want as well. And that to the, to the extent that we are seen as colluding somehow and preventing the achievement of that kind of decent society, we are, we are hung together you know, with, with the kleptocrats at the, at the top of the Russian power pyramid. Anybody want to I think the, the starting point is it's very hard to declare a power that is part of our system. I think we have to, to, to acknowledge that. This is not the Soviet Union where there was, despite some economic relations going on between the West and the Soviet Union, there was a certain economic isolation. Uh, or containment. Here you have a, rush, a power that is part of our financial system in the city, that is part of major investments, energy investment, especially in Europe. So it's part of our blood and, and massive systems of our economies and societies. So deterring a power uh, like this is, is not so clear cut, first point. Second point, like someone said earlier, Russia and Putin are going after our gaps our geopolitical gaps, the Western Balkans, Eastern Europe, the Black Sea, uh, and other parts of the North Atlantic in terms of in strategic terms. So I think what we've got to do in terms of detailed strategy is to fill those gaps and tighten them. Uh, I think the Western Balkans is an area where we have to pay greater attention. Uh, the North Atlantic is an area we've neglected because we are focused on other military planning uh, hot points, and I think we need to look at how the Russians can potentially constrain us and cut the links between the US and Europe should there be a need for re reinforcement. Uh, vulnerability also means we need to build up more resilience inside our societies and our partner societies like Ukraine. I think the best way to fight the Russian money is to fight our own corruption. 
We fight our own corruption and porosity in our economic systems, and the Russians will not be able to exert that much influence with their money uh, in the future. And, and finally, on, on the last point made by Constance and, and, and mentioned earlier by James and also by Sandy, I think we should not have given up in coming through this iron curtain that President Putin is trying to build with this Russian narrative carried out by Russia today and all these media fields. Uh, if we look at the Cold War, it was won to a very large extent on the cultural front. And if you look at accounts of how the societies that were on the other side of the Iron Curtain, either the Soviet satellites or even the, the Soviet Union itself, they pay attention to what they heard from the West. Many people were dreaming of joining the West. And to give you one last example, there is an excellent documentary that won, I think, some, some Academy Awards uh, and many prizes called Winter on Fire, which is about the Maidan Revolution. I encourage you all to, to watch it. It's on Netflix. And I met the director, and he explained me that the documentary, The Day It Went Live, was hacked 200,000 times by people from Russia. Hacked in order to, to view it, because of course in Russia it was not allowed to watch Brings on Fire on Netflix. And yet, more than 250,000, probably now even more people, have hacked in order, in different ways, to watch a documentary that is about a democratic uprising in Ukraine. So I think that part we should not give up. I think NATO right now has the deterrence of defense thing in the Baltic pretty much cut and dried. I mean, the red lines have been made very clear. The Russians try any funny business, we are going to be there in a second. Um, and I think that that has <laughs> registered. I think that that's had, in fact, an impact on Russian decision making. That said, it is and in combination, in fact, that those the, the assurance, deterrence, defense that we've put up there together with the sanctions, I think has made it very clear to the Russians that further territorial activities uh, would be so costly that uh, they're not worth undertaking. At the same time, however, it's, I think, very clear when you sit in Moscow that non-military meddling within the, the borders of Europe and NATO is actually much cheaper, much more effective, and much more deniable. And therefore is simply, the, in many ways, the more intelligent strategy to pursue. And there I have to say what we're looking at is a game of two different long games. A European long game and a Russian long game. And the question is who wins out? I don't think there is, you can't win a long game uh, in the end. Not in the same way that, I mean, you don't, you don't have a, an obvious victory. You know? It is something where you just end up being the stronger And I think the only way that we in the West do that is, is two things. One, we look to our resiliences, to the vacuums that we need to fill, and to the legitimacy and effectiveness of our own representative democracies, markets, and social contract. That is where the game is at. That is where non-military power, where soft power comes in, and where both the European nation state and the EU and transatlantic corporation play a huge role. If we miss out on any of those, we, we stand a much higher chance of losing. Um, on the Russian side, I think the Russians don't have the capabilities, ideological or political, to play anything else than a game of spoils. 
And as long as we give them the opportunities to be spoilers, I think they can do a lot. But they are not in any position, as we have seen in multiple fronts, of actually constructing a legitimate and plausible counter-narrative of a decent society. And I don't frankly expect that to change at this point, are you which is tragic. Did you, I wanted to go to Ash and then James. Just very briefly on this question of uh, deter, uh, deterrence and how to bolster deterrence, I think it's not deterring defeat so much as it is to defend. Uh, we're not going to defeat the Russians through these kinds of efforts, but we can at least prevent them uh, from from taking these actions that are clearly undermining the security of the West. Uh, on, the, on the defense side, on the security front, I think there, it's clear that the kind of deterrence strategies we've adopted over the past couple of years have had an impact of rotational uh, forces through the Baltics uh, and efforts like that send a message and make it clear to, to Russia that they're going to pay a price. If, you know, they're, going to, they're going to have to be extremely careful about crossing those kind of red lines. Where we haven't done well, uh, clearly, is in the, both in the cyber uh, meddling and in these uh, hacking of, uh, and uh, meddling in elections. Uh, where the message is, uh, there, it's open season, there isn't really uh, any kind of real consequence for the Russians to engage in this behavior. Uh, and that's where I think we have to put a lot more thought and effort into how to do that. Uh, this, is a, this is a framework in sort of 20 pages on sort of where are the areas, where are the gaps. We do need to put a lot more, have these sort of uh, uh, policies in place that, that are collective, that will work with our allies and partners, but that make it, that raise the cost, that create real deterrent, uh, imp impose real deterrent measures on the Russians so that when they try to hack Yahoo accounts or they try to engage in this kind of spreading of fake news, there, there isn't just a sort of symbolic act in response, but something that makes them think twice about doing this again. Absolutely. Um, I just wanted to go back to the point about the Russia problem and the Putin problem, um, in case I was misunderstood. Um, obviously, Putin signed off on the annexation of Crimea, so Putin's fault. Um, but I think we know that if we were to follow their bus tomorrow, then, then any likely successor is likely to by and large continue his policies. Yes, we would extend olive branches and it would be an opportunity. But the fact of the matter is he does represent the views um, of the Kremlin in a circle but, um, and, and, and vice versa. Um, but I can't help but feel that unfortunately um, there is a problem in Russian society at large whereby <laughs> if you, they, they do feel Ukraine is part of them in a way which we can't understand. I mean, it was explained to me that if they want, if Ukraine is I mean, just the origins of the origins of, of, of Russia are in Kiev and Rus, are in Ukraine, and for them it is it is almost personal, and then that is a problem. If we believe it to be um, a matter of international law, and that Ukraine, of 45 million people, as you said, um, is as legi a legitimate, independent, sovereign act with a, with a right to, to uh, undergo its own foreign policy and geostrategic orientation, and we have to stick with that. And this is actually another thing to do. Is we actually we don't we, we put the map we've given Ukraine is about 17 times less than we've given Greece. But, but actually, the rhetoric, if we haven't got the money, and we often don't, then actually the rhetoric is actually important. And to say that we stand with you, and to keep on emphasizing the point that these countries are independent, something that the Russians never do, but these countries are independent, as independent as, as, as any European, any North American, uh, any African country are. But they're just like us. I think it's something that needs to, 
uh, isn't going to take a lot of time. But unfortunately, as I say, unfortunately, when I speak to younger Russians, and that hasn't actually yet permeated, I'm sorry to say. That's what worries me about the future. Um, but at the end of the day, it really goes back to what Constantin was saying. It's, it's, a long, it's, a long, it's, a, it's a long game. Um, and, and the whole point about sanctions, I'm sorry to say, is that I, I wouldn't link sanctions to Minsk II, for example. I mean, sanctions were put on for a reason. And that reason was to actually be the, the um, destabilization of Eastern Ukraine and the annexation of Crimea. It therefore follows, logically, that in order to remove sanctions, we need a reason for putting sanctions on also needs to be removed. Not, 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 a, not, a, not a, a bad deal for Ukraine, but a good deal for Russia, which actually Poroshenko was forced into. Um, so, so, so I think that actually sanctions will have their effect in terms of their longevity as much as their intensity. We just have a couple more minutes. I want to do a lightning round, if that's okay with your one. Uh, you're a pretty uh, intel analyst and a former diplomat. My big concern is that even if by some magic we were able to force Crimea back into the Ukraine, uh, undo, once again undoing the 1954 gift, um, that we would face a century of roadside bombings and utter chaos uh, within Crimea. Crimea. So, would it be possible for a realpolitik transactional president to make the deal that you get the hell out of Donbass and Luhansk and maybe Transdenister in exchange for recognition of repeal of the 1954 gift to the Ukraine? Is that a possibility? Um, speaking from a little bit different perspective here, um, I was a Fulbright Scholar for the Russian Federation last year, and my duties there was uh, to work with Russian university students as an English teacher, and I think, uh, judging by my experience, and I'm writing about this now in sort of a work I'm working on, um, Russia's biggest problem with regards to their youth, and this is directly related to the fourth pillar of supporting the interests of the Russian people, there are two things that I think need to be understood, is that um, the Russians are unique people with unique history, and um, in order to um, make the young generation in Russia realize what it is they have, um, I, uh, there has to be cultural exchange, and I can speak for all of my Fulbright colleagues as well, uh, there isn't simply a need um, only to deter, only to defend, which we should deter against tyranny and we should defend human rights, which Russia has violated, there has to be cultural exchange, I think, in order for the younger generation to want to work with the West, and that's all I had to say. But. Down here
outsourcing against countries like Ukraine from the very beginning for centuries. Um, and one of the biggest things that actually has been disputed by the Harvard um, University, and I'm not sure if you're familiar with this, but the Russian uh, Research Institute, the Ukrainian um, Research Institute, and the Belarusian Research Institute came together, I believe it was in 2005, and they um, created the Crime Rate Chronicle, where they researched um, the history of Kievan Rus, and they all determined that actually this history belongs to Ukraine and not to Russia, and that's always been part of the um, disinformation that Russia has spread um, throughout history. It has taken a lot of um, historical facts and distorted about Ukraine. That's just one example. And I think it's very important that um, European countries and Americans all over the world start to study and research the um, historical facts about Russian disinformation because they are masters at it, of manipulation. When you look at Stalin and what he did during World War II, um, about whole of the mind. Well, sure. My question, I guess, could be um, considering that um, if you present this information to our current administration, to Trump, and if he refuses to um, read your papers, is there kind of a backup plan? Fair question. I think you have to distinguish here between what you think is realistically achievable and what international law says. And under international law, and I happen to be an international lawyer, uh, the annexation of Crimea was illegal, full stop, regardless of the history. Certainly the way it was done was illegal. Um, and there are other ways, if you have, if you, if you think you have historical claims to a territory, there are other non-violent ways of going about that, offered to you by international courts. Um, and my, in other words, I think it, while I think it is unlikely that there will be a restitution of Crimea to Ukraine anytime soon, I think it is unacceptable to accept that in any way that is legally conclusive. And, and one of the models that I can think of using for this is the, is the international status of Berlin during the Cold War, yeah, which is you know, accepting reality, but at the same time not accepting it literally and making precautions at every possible point to say that we don't accept it. That's, that's the way it was for Germany uh, with, with, with regard to East Berlin. Now, on the much larger risk to me is one that you haven't mentioned, which is that this, uh, and which is something that Europeans are very worried about, is a deal over Ukraine that results in a de facto partition of Ukraine. In other words, that results in a concession, de facto, of Eastern Ukraine to a Russian sphere of influence. That, to me, is even more unacceptable than the other. Um, it is, um, you know, some of you have heard me say this before, so forgive me if I repeat myself, but for Germans, you know, and given, given the framing of 1989, it is unthinkable that we would not recognize the agency of a nation that wants to that wants to ally itself with the West and of a civil society. That is unacceptable. And so I think that that is something that where Europe would, much of Europe, not all of Europe perhaps, but much of Europe, including Germany, would find itself part in company with Washington if this was seriously suggested. And as you know, there are uh, factors in this town that have been espousing this kind of a territorial deal uh, for quite a long time, in fact, uh, significantly preceding 
uh, this election. And one of the reasons why I think that that is not workable is that, it, I mean, it's not just morally and legally unacceptable, it's also practically not workable, is that there no longer are any walls. Uh, people are mobile, and you can't make them disappear into gulags anymore. In other words, if Russians don't like it, if Ukrainians don't like it, people will move. In fact, they already are moving. So I think a territorial partition of, this, of the kind that we knew during the Cold War was possible politically and legally only under the conditions of the Cold War and is not replicable today. And to suggest otherwise, I think, is, is simply a political fallacy. We've also got the voice of cultural changes and what's the backup plan that we can go for Bruce, James, and Ash. I think Sandy wants to come in. So, yeah. Okay, just make sure you're there. Sorry, can you repeat, please? I was just tossing to you, and we have um, questions about the importance of cultural exchanges with Russia and what the backup plan is. Yeah, wherever you want to wait. Um, backup plan, I don't know if this administration is uh, the new backup plan, but depending on what consent says, I, I think clearly uh, the good thing about the bad move that President Trump uh, made early in his presidency is that now he's clearly constrained by the Congress. Uh, he cannot leave sanctions even though they are based on executive orders, but I think quasi-automatically Congress will pass a legislation that will allow the Senate to pass basically the equivalent of the executive orders on sanctions. So he cannot mess around and he cannot do a deal above Ukraine. And there cannot be a deal on Ukraine without Ukraine. I think this is a, a, and hopefully a message that Chancellor Merkel is going to, to emphasize tomorrow. Uh, now, I think that there is actually a possibility because Putin probably thought two months ago that he could have it all. He could have sanctions lifted and he could continue destabilizing Ukraine. Now he's got to choose. He can continue to destabilize Ukraine like he does and we see some recent events where, for example, <coughs> Russian authorities have recognized some of the documents issued by the separatists as official documents you know, these are small steps to kind of increase the pressure. He can continue doing that, but that means the sanctions are going to stay there. Or he can seek indeed a lifting or partial lifting of the sanctions, but like all of the panelists have said, there will have to be some concrete improvements and steps taken, especially to improve the security conditions in Israel Ukraine. Um, so, and I think he wants to be re-elected in one year. And like most autocrats, he needs to be re-elected with at least 80% of the votes. So he needs a plebiscite. And to get a plebiscite from Russian voters, he needs a big patriotic success. Crimea is too far behind. Syria is done. Uh, and the economy is not doing well, even though the oil prices are again going up, that it's not enough to recover from the pre-2011 level. So, Sanctions relief could be a way to consolidate his power and the 50 people or so around him, but also to give, you know, to inject more cash into the Russian economy and more foreign capital. Uh, finally, uh, on the deterrence, I, I would disagree with Constance. I think we are not totally filled the Baltic gap. I think we have done some symbolic and important measures by deploying four battalions, including three battalions in the three Baltic states. 
but we still have some significant gap, especially in the broader Baltic region, especially in the maritime domain. And should the Russians decide to make our lives more complicated by using the capabilities they have deployed in Kaliningrad, they can make any kind of reinforcement to the Baltic states very costly. And therefore, there will be doubt in the West about whether we should reinforce our allies in the Baltic or whether we should accept the fair conflict. So I think we still have a long way to go before saying that we have you know, a, a fully functioning, full-fledged deterrent strategy. And just to finish for the record, I'm French, but this is just water. <laughs> <laughs>
Ukraine's iron knife edge. It could go you know, towards you know, increased corruption, or it could, or it could join the West. And I, I think there's a lot to there's a, there's a lot to play for. There's a lot to there's a lot to still do. And so we we absolutely perhaps I hope this is one person from this report that we, we really mustn't give up because because the game is still in play. Okay, yeah, two, just two quick points and then we're out of time. Uh, I, I fully agree with the idea of cultural exchange and people-to-people -people contacts. I think this is the long-term way in which the soft power uh, uh, advantage that the West has it will ultimately succeed. That there will only be real change in Russian behavior in, in, uh, in our relationship with Russia. Uh, I think once we have a government that is more open uh, to Western uh, and, and democratic values. and so. One way to do that is to make sure we invest in these kinds of contacts with students, with people, uh, with, uh, with just the sort of uh, exchange of views and, and, and that comes from being, from being in direct contact. Uh, what's the backup plan? I, mean, I think one other way of looking at it is to say, well, if, if President Trump himself is headed in a particular direction, there are ways to continue to try to ensure that he, he has to pay attention to the political environment around him. And I, I would offer you know, two, two sort of suggestions around uh, that idea is, one is the officials that have, that are in positions of authority, the Secretary of Defense, the Secretary of State, the National Security Advisor, to the extent that they can be armed with uh, arguments and with uh, policies uh, and, and uh, you know, approaches that help uh, ensure that we're, we're taking thoughtful measures and steps on uh, Russia that maybe could, could constrain, uh, as we say, could constrain this administration. Um, the, uh, the second is on, on Capitol Hill. I think Luis mentioned the idea that you know, there are members of Congress very supportive of uh, maintaining sanctions that can be legislated. Uh, there are members of Congress that are uh, highly concerned about any uh, attempt to try to sell out uh, the Ukrainians or to try to diminish um, or to try to create some kind of deal with Russia uh, that, that uh, you know, undermines our other interests in other areas of the world. So I think Congress will also serve as a pretty significant check um, on, on anything coming out of the administration that might be uh, to our detriment. Thank you to Congress. Thank you, everybody, and thanks to our panel.